Welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog focusing on the ritualized year, folklore, and history. I'm Devin, I have a master's in American history and indigenous studies, and today we have a special guest. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, um, I'm Esther Guillen. I am a PhD candidate in the history and classics department at McGill University. Um, I have a master's degree in New Testament studies, um, and I work as a lay minister in the United Church of Canada. And I'm, so my specialization is in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Excellent. That's a lot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I have many qualifications. That's perfect. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Which is perfect because today our theme that we're focusing on is the holiday of Epiphany. Epiphany. Cool. Epiphany. Epiphany. Yes. So do you want to explain for anybody who might not be actively practicing this holiday what what it is? is? Yeah. Well, um, Epiphany means two different things. One thing for the Eastern Church, which is also often referred to as the Greek Church, and one thing for the Western Church, which is also often referred to as the Latin Church. Um, And those distinctions come from... Uh, 1500 years ago, basically, when those were the languages and Constantine and all those guys. Um, But epiphany, the word is, it's a Greek word and it means uh, to show. So what we, um, what the the term means at this point within the festival epiphany of epiphany is the, um, the showing of Jesus as God or the showing of God. Um, In the Eastern church, it's also sometimes called theophany. Um, so if you hear the epiphany and theophany, you might be able to hear the same roots between the two. And that's yep. from the Greek word uh, phano or phino, which means to show. Okay. Um, so epiphany is the showing. Theophany is the showing of God or the appearing of God. Um, the festival, the reason that there are two different things has um, to do with calendars that yeah. a lot of the Eastern Church still uses um, the the ritual calendar, the liturgical calendar is based off of the Julian calendar, yeah. um, which was Julian as in Julius Caesar and the Julio-Claudian dynasty of the Roman Empire. Um, whereas in the so-called Western world, we tend to use the Gregorian calendar. Right. Um. So the dates don't line up. So the difference, they, they're they both celebrating. So this is one of the reasons that um, Epiphany in the Eastern Church is when Christmas is celebrated, or what we think of as Christmas mm-hmm. in the Western Church is celebrated. Um, whereas we celebrate that on generally on the 25th of December. It usually falls somewhere between the 6th and the 19th of January um, in the Eastern Churches. Um. Yes. So that it has to do with calendars. Um, okay. So in Epiphany in the Eastern Church is celebrating often the appearance of God um, as Jesus, but also the baptism of Jesus. Okay. Um, it's a, a celebration um, of the two together, but sometimes they were originally listed as two different festivals um, on some of our ancient documents. So it might have been two festivals on one day. Now the two tend to be, so we have both the nativity and the baptism happen at the same time on epiphany okay now in the western church epiphany is this is what i'm i'm a a baby of the western church so this is what i like to hang out with um the the western church epiphany is the magi 
Right. Super fun. Yay for the Magi. This is the version that I know. <laughs> yes, yes. We Three Kings. Yeah. Yes. So those, we have the story of the Magi. Hmm. Where to start? So the story of the Magi, people might be familiar uh, with the idea of the Three Kings coming. So that's that awful song. Uh, we three kings of Orientar, which my <laughs> stepfather, um, also United Church minister, had likes to to call the kings from Orientar. Where's Orientar, <laughs> Esther? Tell me where Orientar is. Yes, yes, it is. Um, Christian dad jokes are very common in my household, so that's how we go over here. Excellent. <laughs> so in um, so the story of the Magi. The Magi is only found in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, we have two okay. distinct versions of Jesus's nativity or birth story. Um, the story of him as a very baby baby. Um, right. One found in Luke and one mm -hmm. found in Matthew. Usually at church, the mm -hmm. two are squished together. So generally, like when you do a Christmas pageant at church, you have um, some children playing shepherds and some children playing kings and then uh, a Mary, a Joseph and a baby and maybe a donkey if you're really lucky. When I was a kid, we used to have a wooden donkey on wheels and it was like a big oh, treat wow. to get to ride on the wooden donkey <laughs> at church. I spent a lot of my life fun, at church. <laughs> the excitement was, you take it where it comes. Um <laughs> At that point, so yeah, uh, but yeah so there. I don't think I've been in a, a Chris, Christmas pageant at church before. It was all those like secular ones at Ooh. like public school, but we did oh. have a, a the a little like porcelain crash, you know. Yeah, Mary, Jesus, and Joseph. Yeah, well, yeah. we had the we had the little magi too, and an angel. And uh, there was a sheep and like, I don't know, I think a llama. I don't know. There was like some like, llama. Animal, animals awesome. that were not supposed to be there were involved. Llamas in, in Palestine. <laughs> yeah. Bring it on. I can't remember. My mom has it somewhere. That's awesome. Well, that is, that is a, a perfect example of the harmonized nativity yeah. story that your crash has both the shepherds and the little lambs mm -hmm. and... Matthew's version, which includes yeah. the the Magi. In my house, um, my mom collects crushes, and I, I often oh, buy cool. her ones when I travel. Yeah. Um, but in our house, the Magi don't get to come until Epiphany, so <laughs> oh, we have so them cute. set up. Yeah. So <laughs> when we have Christmas at my parents' house in Ottawa, we'll have, like, a bunch of different uh, crushes <laughs> set up. And then we have these three wise men, which are, they're, like, a foot tall, and um, and I th it was either my step, either my stepfather's mom or his first wife, Sharon, who um, passed away uh, 20 years ago. One of them painted either. I can't remember which one it was, but one of them painted them. So they're about a foot and a half high of these three figures of the wise men. And the the creches go in the living room and the dining room is next to the living room. So the wise men sit in the living room, but they are on the, in the dining room on the table. And they're mm -hmm. always facing towards the west because they come Aww. from the east. And we move them closer and closer. It's really cute. cute. It's adorable. really cute. But we're... This year we're um, we're up at our cottage because of COVID right. and there's no church COVID. and everything. Yeah, COVID, yeah. Um, and it's just my mom and my stepdad and I, um, and we only have one crush up here that's um, 
uh, a Matryoshka doll crush. So Joseph is oh, the biggest he, one. Like, pops out of the. Yes, exactly, exactly. So there's only one shepherd and one wise man. And my mom and I were putting the crush up on Christmas Eve. Um, and I, she said, oh, why don't you go organize all of the crash on the table? And I put them out and then she was like, where's the wise man? And I was like, it's not epiphany yet. He's over there. He'll be coming on the six. And she's like, but he's going to be all alone and lonely. I think that we should put him with the shepherd this year. Oh no. Yeah. You don't want a lonely yeah. wise man. No, you don't want a lonely wise man. Oh no. So, so Jesus only gets one present this year. Apparently, here up at Lac Fairburn in the Oudouay in Quebec, Jesus is only getting one present. <laughs> but this is pretty far from where Jesus was born, so hopefully You'll in understand. the space-time continuum, he is still receiving all three of his presents. <laughs> and it's wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, okay. okay. The Magi. <laughs> right. So who are these wise men? <laughs> Well, they... Do we the, know? We don't. Are they real? Are they... Probably not. <laughs> oh, no. So, I know. It's, it's interesting. They... My... Um, uh, like, I, I'm a practicing Christian, and mm-hmm. I work as a, um, a lay preacher, as a, mm-hmm. a lay minister in the United Church. Um, but I don't believe... Uh, that the Bible is a story or a, of true historical happenings. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are threads of history that we can mm-hmm. tease out of our Bible stories. Um, but the, I mean, the first of all, there's just too many different accounts. There's too many different versions of the story. So how do we say what really happened? Yeah. But also, um, I like the birth of Jesus is really important and what the beginning of his life and the rest of his life was like is very important. Mm -hmm. Um, But for me, what I feel an association with is um, what I like to call our ancestors in the faith. So these are historical Christians from the last 2000 years who have told these stories and written stories down about Jesus and made things up about him and perpetuated his life within our um, spiritual existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to me, I, I don't think that three magi from the East showed up 12 days after Jesus was born. But I do think it's really cool that Matthew tells us a story that he did. And I think yeah. that that still has something to do or it, it, that still affects both the our understanding of the history of the story, but it's also... Mm-hmm. Um, a, a faith experience for some of our listeners might be church people and some might not be. The mm-hmm. fact that, that the wise men didn't come and bring gold, frankincense and myrrh to Jesus doesn't mean that it's not an important story and it doesn't have something to tell us about yeah. um, how people imagine Jesus in history. So the story, it's only like 12 verses long. It's okay. really short. Yeah. Um, and has inspired terrible Christmas carols for many, many years <laughs> to come. Um, so Jesus is born in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Mary and Joseph already live in Bethlehem. They're not in the Galilee. We don't have the census. Okay. There's no the travel on the donkey kind of thing um, in Matthew. They already live in Bethlehem. Okay. Also, Jesus is born in a house, not in a stable. Okay. Um, so Jesus gets born. Everybody's cool. 
they're hanging out and then suddenly these um, three wise men show up and they first come. So Bethlehem is a town that is quite close to Jerusalem, about a day and a half's walk from Jerusalem. Um, and Matthew tells us that the uh, what he calls Magi um, mm-hmm. show up from Magi from the east as they show up in Jerusalem and they start asking people what they say. We saw a star in the east mm-hmm. um, and it was a sign that the king of the Jews has been born. So tell us where the king of the Jews is. We've we've come as far as we can on our own. Tell us where we can find him. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they get uh, Herod, Herod the Great, um, mm-hmm. who's king. He's a, a, a client king of, because um, Judea, this is a Roman province now. We're part of the Roman Empire at this stage. Um, Herod the Great hears that there are these wise men who are talking about finding the king of the Jews. And he's like, hang on, I'm the king of the Jews. What's going on here? We can't have a new one because he's not my son. Um, so he gets the three wise men to come to his palace. And um, he says, after you find him, come back to me and tell me where he is because I want to worship him too. So the wise men, the okay. magi are like, cool. And off we go. So they uh, presumably get back on their camels Um Matthew doesn't tell us that they have camels, but presumably <laughs> they get back on their camels or horses or in their palaquins being carried by slaves or something. Okay. And they trot on down the road to Bethlehem uh, and they find the house where the baby Jesus is hanging out with Mary and Joseph. Okay. And they bow down to him, um, except they don't just bow down. Uh, in the ancient world, there were two really distinct ways of showing a physical homage to a king. Okay. Um, in the Greek and the Roman world, you would bow from the waist. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Persia, um, you do what's called prostrating. So you actually, yeah. your whole body gets down on the ground. Like laying, uh, like flat? Exactly. Like okay. you lay, like your forehead, tummy, and toes are all touching oh, the ground. Okay. Okay. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this was not a normal practice for Greeks or Romans to do. It was one of the problems that Alexander the Great's buddies had is that he wanted to be prostrated too. And they were like, yo, we don't do that. We're Macedonian. Right. So it, just like that with the yo's and stuff, you know it. Um, In English. <laughs> you know, it's a thing. It's they're, they're chilling out, talking to each other and stuff. They'd all been friends since they were kids. It's like normal. Rural Canadian. Just like. Obviously, just going for a rip. We're just going for a rip, are you, bud? <laughs> it's been two years in Saskatchewan. It happens. Um, so, the Magi prostrate themselves in front of Jesus. So, this is mm-hmm. this is the greatest display that someone from the East, so that this implies Persia. This is the greatest display of, of homage, of homage right. that anyone from the East can show. Um, so they prostrate themselves in front of Jesus and then they bring the prezies. So we always tell the story as if there are three wise men, Mm -hmm. but Matthew doesn't actually tell us how many wise men there are in his version of the story. Um, Mm -hmm. that's the only reason, the reason we say that there's three is because they bring three presents. Yeah. Uh, and this will probably be super familiar. The first present is gold. Second present is frankincense, mm-hmm. and the third present is myrrh. Right. Um, all three presents have 
are a ton of significance. They're really, really important. They're not just like random gifts that he picked up. They picked up at the dollar store. These are like things <laughs> that are necessary and they say things about things. Okay. So gold is obviously a gift of luxury. Yeah. Um, Definitely something is... a baby needs. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure it's something that the baby's mom needs because like <laughs> life is hard when you have a baby. <laughs> Bring on some gold, please. <laughs> also, they had to, like, run away to Egypt after this story. That, that would be true. expensive. Oh, yes. That would. would be expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so, but they do they do have two different functions. So that all okay. three gifts are, are really luxury goods. Mm-hmm. And they're the kinds of gifts that you would give to a king. Right. Um, so gold, frankincense, and myrrh are both tree resins um, okay. that were used through ritual for ritual practices throughout the ancient Near East <clears throat> and in the Greek world as well. Um, so gold is obvious, but all three of them, gold as well, also has uh, magical and wisdom associations. Okay. So um, in the ancient world, inscribing, um, you'd have what was called an amulet. Mm-hmm. Um, so an amulet could be something that was worn on a piece of leather or string around the neck, um, like a necklace, or they would also hang them um, above the where the baby was sleeping, or you'd have them on doorways. So they're protective devices. Okay. Um, and so you would inscribe um, statements or desires or sometimes even curses, um, on amulets. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the, the writing, the act of writing has special importance and Mm -hmm. makes the thing happen more. So gold is used for that. Um, myrrh ink is used for writing oracular requests. So when you go to an oracle or a prophet, Mm -hmm. Um, like might think about the, the prophet, um, the oracle at, at Delphi, which um, right. was an Apollo oracle. You write, you don't just go in and ask the question verbally. You write your question down. Ah. Uh, yes. Okay. Well, and then sometimes maybe you don't write your question down. Someone else does. Cause most people couldn't yeah, read or couldn't write, write at the time. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the, the, the 300 movie lied to me with their whole thing where he mm-hmm. goes up. Okay. <laughs> that is yes. And that I is one that of the times where an accurate film. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, three hundred is just not very. No, dang. No, there's not a lot of historicity in three hundred. It is wonderful. The images are great. Um, I do use it for teaching because oh. movies from the ancient world are fun, uh, or about the ancient world are fun. Um, but no, <laughs> that is not what happened. <laughs> At. shucks <laughs> i know but leonidas um so yeah so myrrh ink is uh, used for writing down um questions that you would have okay. of the oracle and frankincense is used um as smoke so you would burn it like frank incense right incense yeah. um so lots of us burn incense now when you know especially during covid times when we both work out work eat all of our meals and <laughs> hang out all day long in the same place. Sometimes incense is necessary. This is a very so, sweaty, curry-filled house it, now. Uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, sometimes. Sometimes that happens. That's a thing. Um, but this kind of incense was used specifically for bringing on or for transmitting dreams. Okay. Yeah. So 
because dreams are really, really important ways that you get information in the ancient world. This is one right. of the main ways that um, that the divine communicates with us in the, the mortal world. Right. Um, so you would either uh, intentionally get a dream. So what's called an incubation ritual. So you'd go and you'd sleep overnight in a temple um, or in a specific holy place and the mm -hmm. God would give you a dream. Um, or you bring on these dreams um, by using incense or something like that. Okay. Um, yeah. So all three gifts are super rich. They are the kinds of things that you bring to the king of the Jews, but all three gifts are also super ritual, super magical, and right. really important for somebody who will later in his life in the Matthew story, do things like interpret dreams, right? perform miracles, right? interpret writings, um, all of these things that our wisdom bearers, that mm -hmm. our magi did in the ancient world. Because magi does not mean wise man. Magi okay. means magician. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So it, it's a fun thing in that magi is used in the New Testament to both describe great and wonderful characters like mm -hmm. the guys that we call the three kings but also used to um, denigrate or uh, deauthorize characters. Um, like in the book of Acts, the first heretic, his name is Simon, and he's always called Simon Magus or Simon the Magician. Okay. Yeah, so it can right. Have... Okay. Yeah, so it can be both positive and negative at the same time. Okay, um, so I yeah. have a question about magic in the ancient yeah. world, because we yeah. have had two... Uh, two episodes about witches, right? Mm -hmm. So we talked about um, like medieval magic where like wise men could create magic, but it was like through the magic was performed by God. And then mm -hmm. we have like the Protestant magic, which is it's all evil and it comes from the devil. And then we have indigenous magic which is something totally different. So yes. how how does the the magic work cuz th there's writing that's very from the the magics that I have studied in history very eastern in China everything is done through mm -hmm. writing. So mm -hmm. how who who is doing the actual magic part? Well, so in the same way as our medieval wise men okay. um, cause magic to happen from divine, that's what we what authorized magic would be in the ancient okay. world as well. Cool. So someone who was an, an authorized magician has the ability to call on a deity, either God, capital G, mm -hmm. um, like the Israelite God, or a god like Zeus or Apollo or... Marduk from the east or any of these dudes or dudettes um, as well. It's important to remember women like Ishtar or goddesses like Ishtar and Ashra and all of those. So a magician would um, ask them to do something. So a magician was someone who had a special association with a divine right. person okay. who was able to do things for them. They don't, they don't hold the magical power within themselves. Okay. Unless they are being deauthorized, right? So, because magicians um, 
all sorts of people are able to do magic. It's just whether they should be doing the magic or not, whether they're getting it from good or from evil. And this is one of the the accusations that gets brought against Jesus throughout all of the um, are the four canonical versions mm-hmm. of his life story. Um, he'll be um, raising somebody or healing someone on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees or the Sadducees, who are uh, a Jewish or Judean temple um, wise people. Mm-hmm officiants say it's the sabbath you're not allowed to do that and they accuse him of getting his power from evil instead of from god right so you can magicians are able to perform magic either through the power of bad Mm -hmm. demons or through the power of uh, divine gods but it really depends on first of all what you think is divine and what you think is evil but also what you think of the person performing the magic, because we would say that Jesus is performing magic um, or performing miracles miracles or great deeds because God um, capital G God is saying, you are my son. You have all of the abilities that I have. You have them too. But when he's seen doing things within the, the Jewish temple context, mm-hmm. which are against the law, it is his actions are against the law. It's entirely appropriate for the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes of the temple to say, dude, stop what you're doing, because it is for them illegal. And yeah. Jesus is supposed to be living within that, um, that legal context. Right. Okay. So. Yeah. Okay. We say, do it up. They say, yeah. don't. But yes, that is that was a long-winded explanation okay, of magic cool. <laughs> in the ancient world. And Jesus. Awesome. Hey, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> he, I, you know, I'm down with him. He's cool. I like him. Jesus is just all Seems right like with me. He's like a chill me. guy. <laughs> he is just all right with me. He got really angry at, like, people who were making too much money and not helping out the poor and... He was like the widow who gave the one coin that she had was better than the dude who gave like a tenth of his yeah. money because he could have given all yeah. of it. So, you know, my Jesus is a socialist, <laughs> which I am down with. Yeah. That was totally. Bring on the socialist Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Flipping those tables and stuff. Yeah. Rich men so. and camels. Yes. Rich men and camels. Um <laughs> Yeah, so our magicians and our our magi, right. our three wise dudes, rich man on camels that we're talking about, um, they were uh, probably, Matthew was thinking of them as priests, okay. um, as ritual specialists, mm-hmm. as people who are able to do the kind of work that he shows Jesus doing later on in mm-hmm. his life after he started his mission. Um, the dreams, though, are really, really important. Okay. Um Matthew really likes using dreams to to show what God wants humans to do or uh, semi-humans as he might be thinking of Jesus as. Um, so lots of people get dreams. Um, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, way at the other end of the story, Pilate's wife gets a mm-hmm. dream. And that's why Pilate's like, I wash my hands of this blood. Yeah. I don't take responsibility for the crucifixion. Um, but at the beginning of the story... The wise men get dreams, but also Joseph, yeah. Jesus's um, earthly father, receives dreams. Interestingly, though, when Joseph gets dreams, um, Matthew always says that an angel of the Lord came to Joseph in a dream. 
Okay. Whereas when he's talking about the dreams... Oh, right, because they give... The Magi give Mm -hmm. their gifts... Sorry, I jumped over an important part. The Magi give their gifts to Jesus. They pay homage. They prostrate, get themselves down on the ground, do the whole thing. And then they're like, cool, we did our job. Time to go home. Um, But they decide that they should have a sleep first because camels are uncomfortable and you can't sleep on them. (laughs) This is not in the Gospel of Matthew. I made that up. (laughs) Just in case anyone's wondering for clarification. I know. Seriously. (laughs) Oh, no. People are going to start telling that story in church now. This is how these things happen. This is how these stories get created. Crazy people on the internet. Um, So they have a sleep. And while they're sleeping, they receive a dream. And the dream says to them, in the dream, they're told, don't go back to Jerusalem. Don't go back and see Herod. Because if you remember at the beginning, they went to Jerusalem and Herod was like, when you're done, when you find the king of the Jews, come back and tell me so I can pay homage to him too. So, but they get this dream that says, don't go back to Herod. Mm -hmm. So they decide to go home by a different road. But there is no angel in that story. In their dream, they don't, there's, it's not an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream and told them what to do. Just that in the dream, they're told what to do. I am strongly convinced that Matthew is making a statement here about the ability of our magi to receive divine knowledge and interpret it themselves. Okay. And I think that he's drawing a distinction between the magi and Joseph in this story. He's saying Joseph is not a ritual specialist. He's not a magician himself. He's not a priest. He needs an angel, um, which if we'd want to remember that the, our angels are messengers, angelos, uh, that's what the words mean is, is messenger. So Joseph needs a messenger to come and interpret the story for, or interpret the dream for him. Whereas the wise men, our three kings of Orientar, um, are able to, uh, to interpret the dream okay. for themselves. So they go home by a different road. And that's the end of their story. And we never, they were never heard from again. <laughs> that's the end of the Magi um, in the Gospel of okay. Matthew. Um, the story goes on in that it's all part of the same thing, that um, that's when Herod kills all the babies yeah. and stuff. So, but, yeah. <laughs> Yes, but that is who the Magi are and um, what they were doing. So, but there's because they they give Jesus the gifts that they give to Jesus are both signs of kingly place and kingly power, Mm -hmm. as well as the tools of what I think that Matthew is imagining as Jesus's future trade as a ritual specialist and a holder of divine knowledge. Cool. Yes, that's the Magi. The Magi. And now we dress up as kings and put on cardboard crowns <laughs> on our heads at Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> and all of those things. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, um, the tradition lasts throughout history pretty effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, they, around the year 500, <clears throat> um, they get given names. Um, so the three names we have uh, Melchior, right. Balthazar, um, I'm going to have to start that sentence again because my brain is fried. Just bear That's with fine. me here. Wow, that's super lame, Esther. So 
So the, the tradition of the Magi lasts really well throughout history. Mm-hmm. Um, and around the year 500, they even get given names. Um, so we have the, the names that they're given uh, within our stories um, are Melchior, who is supposed to be a Persian scholar, okay. um, and then Casper um, and Balthazar. He's probably a Babylonian scholar. And Casper is most often presented as being um, African, so having black skin, um, which has, over the years, has led to some difficulty within European communities, especially in the Spanish community. There's, um, both in the Hispanic world and in Spain, there's a strong um, um, tradition of the three wise men, which they think of as the three kings. Um, And often Casper is played by a white guy in blackface. So there's been a lot of push to not have that um, anymore in pageants, to have an actual black man um, playing Caspar. In the pageants, because blackface is not a really bad idea. Not a great look. Yeah. (laughs) No, not a good look. No, means not a good thing. Don't appreciate it. Um... Yeah, and then the what one of the things that I I found really interesting when I was talking about this with my parents the other night, and I told them I was going to do the podcast with you, um, and my mom said, "Well, when did they start calling them kings?" So I tried to do some research today on why they where did the king thing come from, um, and unfortunately, uh, nobody that we don't have an early attestation. Like, there's no definitive attestation as the when yeah. they start being called kings. Um, it might be some scholars have suggested it's um, some scholars have suggested that it's a nod to Isaiah. Uh, Matthew really enjoys Isaiah prophecies, mm-hmm. and um, uh, Isaiah does theoretically prophesy the Messiah. Um, and one of the things that Isaiah says is that the kings will come and pay homage. Kings will come and prostrate right. before him. Okay, so. That's one of the reasons that he might be called. They we tend to call them kings, or it's possibly one of the reasons that we call them kings rather than wise men. Um, but never magicians. We never call yeah. them magicians. <laughs> Which we well, should. Yeah. We should. We should be calling them magicians. The NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, so the um, the accepted English translation that's used by most mm-hmm. scholars, um, is the NRSV, and that in there they have a note. Um, so it'll say wise men in the English text. And there's a note that says, um, or astrologers, Greek magi. So even in there, they're not, they're only using astrologers. They're not, they were refusing to use magicians. But oh. in any other Greek text of the period, any non-biblical text of the period, magi is always translated as magicians. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then when we talk, like Sa- Simon Magus, as we, mm-hmm. I was saying earlier in, in Acts, um, that is always translated as magician, magician. Right. but because in, in our world, magician has a negative connotation right. as opposed to a positive connotation or even the possibility of both. Um, for us, magician means superstition or mm-hmm. like you were bringing up earlier about witchcraft and evil yeah. and that it has to come from the devil and things like that. So our, it's important to remember that translation is a, enculturated and cultural specific process that often the way that um that these words are translated into english is not necessarily what the original authors were thinking about cool Mm -hmm. cool cool yeah so okay so talking about like bouncing off of the like 
concept of translations and the differing like stories that we have in the bible and wherever else i'm curious because uh my research really lives in the 18th 19th century where people just wrote stuff down and we have like 14 (laughs) different accounts of everything if we don't have literal photographs of people so like i know like what john ross was up to when he was born where he went to school like all these things because everybody wrote down a gajillion things about him how do you know things about the ancient world like how do historians like how do you create historical knowledge with so few pieces of written yeah uh-huh. Like no evidence ever. Yeah. yeah. So it's it, baffling to me. It, it is also baffling to historians of the ancient world. Let me tell you. Okay, great. You are not alone. Um, it's it is a it's kind of a two part question. The okay. There's oh, oh dear no it's kind of a more than two part question. So figure out I'm which sure we're going to do many first. Books. Many I many parts get about this. No, yes. Oh my god. Seriously. Actually, but. In for podcastness, so there's there's a difficulty or a difference. Um, first of all, with how we know things about the ancient world that have to do with Christianity, and how mm-hmm. we or how we think we know things about the ancient world that have to do with Christianity, and okay. how we think we know things about the ancient world that don't have to do with Christianity. Okay, um, we have the Bible. The New Testament, right. which ostensibly right. gives us four versions of Jesus's life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And mm-hmm. then we have the book of Acts, which is the story about the Acts of the Apostles. So Paul and mm-hmm. his buddies. And then we have a bunch of letters, some of which were actually written by Paul, some of which were written by dudes pretending to be Paul. Right. Um, and then uh, a couple of other letters. And then that super weird thing at the end called Revelation. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. I'm not going to talk about that one. Read it yourselves. It is super weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fun time. <laughs> Full disclosure, Dev and I have been doing a Bible study with our Bible study group on it. It is super weird. Yeah, so <laughs> Jesus, maybe Jesus shows up with a flaming sword coming out of his mouth. Out of his mouth. His tongue <laughs> is both flaming and a flaming sword, and the flaming sword is coming out of his mouth. Yeah. Uh, my and mom was... he is possibly on fire. Is... Yeah. But gl- also maybe just glowing with light. Glowing. Yeah. 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 My, my possibly also just a stream of water. Maybe also just a stream of water <laughs> babbling over a brook. Jesus is a complicated guy. He can inhabit he lots of different multitudes. forms all at once. <laughs> multitudes. Uh, my mom was telling me when she was doing her theological education, uh, she took a course um, when she was doing her master's at at Queen's uh, here in, in Ontario in theology. She took a course um, on Revelation. And they were required to do uh, a poster assignment for it. So she actually, like, drew and crafted this, like, giant image of Jesus on, like, bristle board size with the flames and the water and the tongue of sword fire and the whole thing. And I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. She was in her uh, late 50s at the time, so it's even better. 
Really? That's excellent. Yeah. That's like all the people who draw out the biblical depictions of angels. It's like, yeah. oh, now I know why they start everything with do not be afraid. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> a friend of mine um, has a, a a stuffed, like a plushie that someone made for him of one of the oh, Daniel man. monsters with like the six eyes and the 12 tails and like the forked <laughs> tongue and the whole banana plushie. So it's like cute, Aww. but also I'm going to eat your face. <laughs> All together. <laughs> Um, but back to historiography. Right. Well, digression into crazy John of Patmos there. <laughs> so we so we have this book um, or collection of books or a collection of books and letters that we call the New Testament. And then we also have this other book, which is like way longer, um, that co- gets called things like the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Um mm-hmm. Or the Jewish scriptures. Um, I prefer Hebrew Bible, even though not all of it was written in Hebrew. It acknowledges that these are scriptures for um, are, that are contained and unified and for a people that are not Christian. Um, right. Just as a note, I'm, you probably know this, Dev, but just in case other, other people listening don't know this, Testament means covenant. And when we say Old Testament and New Testament, what we're saying is that Jesus erased the old covenant and when we do that we say that um the jews got it wrong which who are we to say that so right we should probably not say that so hebrew bible and new testament okay. neither of these books are very good sources for history both okay. of them are for the most part kind of garbage sources for history <laughs> okay with a couple of exceptions um, particularly some of the later books. So we have the, the apocryphal books or the inter-canonical uh, books of the Maccabees, which tell okay. us about the, the Jewish revolt in the last centuries BCE. Um, mm-hmm. And that's how Herod the Great, who we were talking about earlier, that's how he came to be king. So he's from that right. Maccabean, Hasbadean dynasty line. Um, and, but in the New Testament, we have a couple of letters that are definitely, well, most scholars are pretty confident most of the time that they were actually written by a dude called Paul. Okay. Um, so out of the thousands and thousands and thousands of pages that we find in a Bible, there's like maybe 40 of them that have history. So. Okay. We. Don't know things in the ancient world, <laughs> especially when you study Bible. Um, our book okay. sources are really bad. Um, we have very few mentions of uh, Christians um, or Christ followers in the early centuries um, after the death of Jesus. Um, we have some writings by other Christians that we think are pretty reliable. Okay. But what we've come to rely on... Um, more strongly than the writings uh, that are specifically about or by Christians um, is attempting to contextualize our characters within their enculturated world. So um, my master's degree is a New Testament study as well, religious studies with the New Testament. And I wrote my thesis um, on the gospel of Matthew Um, and the, I open my thesis by saying, this is not a historical document. Um, he probably made most of it up. 
but really we need to be thinking about these authors the same way that we think about creative authors from the ancient world. So while they are garbage sources for history about actual Jesus, they are really exciting sources for the authors themselves and what they were thinking was important. Okay. Um, And so one of the ways that we know things in the ancient world is how our authors used other sources to create the books that they write. Right. So Matthew does not, I mean, he probably makes up most of his stuff, but he doesn't, oh my God, I'm such a heretic. Um, A good chunk of it, he doesn't make up. Okay. He has two main sources. Um, His two sources that he's using to write his version of the biography of Jesus are the Gospel of Mark um, and a document that we call Q. Um, Q is a... a, Yeah. Oh. So, shall I explain what Q is? Is this actually a podcast in the New Testament studies? This didn't happen? (laughs) Sorry. So Q is a theoretical document that um, may or may not contain actual sayings, uh, things that Jesus said, aphorisms, um, or little messages, kerygmai, that he... Does it have Q-level clearance? (laughs) I like to think of it as Q from Star Trek The Next Generation, where he just, Ah, like, snaps his fingers and he goes off and does No, 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 this is not QAnon. (laughs) Well before, thank you very much, Trubbers. Um, no, it's, it comes from the German, uh, Quelle, which means source. Ah, so oh, okay. it's, okay. it's the, the saying source or the source source, but because, um, it's been recreated. The only reason that, that we know in scare quotes, mm-hmm. know that it exists, um, is because super smart dudes, mostly German theologians, um, about 200 years ago, realized that there's a whole ton of document or contents in their gospels that Matthew and Luke share with Mark. Both Matthew and Luke use Mark as a source, but there's also a whack ton of stuff in both those gospels that they have in common with each other that are not in Mark. So okay. it's those, those things that, that we call Q. Okay. And we're, we can make a reasonable supposition of the contents of Q. Um, it has been uh, recreated I am convinced fairly effectively <clears throat> by a scholar at the University of Toronto and um, called John Kloppenberg and some of his colleagues. Um, okay. So, yeah. So we can take Matthew's story and say he had this version of Mark and he had this version mm-hmm. of Q and these are the changes that he's making in it. So okay. we can't use it for history about what he's writing about, but we can use right. it for history of him because we can see what yeah. kinds of changes he makes. Um, so that's one of the ways that we know things, um, about the ancient world. We also have a ton of archeological evidence. There's a huge amount, um, of digs happening um, Mm and all across Italy, Greece, um, throughout Israel, Palestine, um, other parts of the Middle East, gorgeous ones in Jordan, like in Petra, of course, Mm -hmm. um, So we can get a lot of information from archaeological evidence. All of our, this is one thing that historians of the ancient world, I I think are very good at is recognizing that most of our work is done as interpretation. Right. 
because I don't have, I don't have archives. I don't have birth certificates. I have, don't have photographs or like video, which would be so amazing. He totally did say those things, but no, I mean, of course, everyone knows that now video can be altered in lots of different ways. But like there was a period of time for like 25 years where video was totally reliable evidence. And I like to think that that would be super cool. Yeah. So <laughs> we have none of that for the ancient world. Um, so we we are constantly interpreting our sources um, right. and we are both in- interpreting both our written sources and our archaeological evidence because we can find... So at the temple um, in Jerusalem, which is mm-hmm. the, the temple that's described in, in the Gospels, um, you parts of the wall of the, the temple compound that were built just before Jesus was born um, mm-hmm. by Herod, that um, Herod the Great, who killed all the babies and wise men's mm-hmm. story, he's also known as Herod the Builder. So he did, he undertook massive building projects in Jerusalem while he was king for 40 years. It was a long time. Right. Um, so he built or caused to be built uh, this massive temple compound um, in Jerusalem. And the you can walk along and touch the original walls. Um, that he built. So this 2000 year old masonry, which I have to say is pretty cool that I, I didn't think um, like the first time I traveled to Israel, Palestine, I thought that I was going to go and just be like, I've been reading about these things for years and I've seen lots of pictures and I'm not even going to care that I'm there. And then the first, my like first real artifact that I had read about it for years, I like did a jig in the Israeli antiquities museum. (laughs) I was so excited to see the Tel Dan Stele. (laughs) And my professor from Hebrew was like, uh, Esther. <laughs> like, this is really exciting. So there was one day um, that he took us, uh, sorry, because I, I took an, an archaeology of Jerusalem course that mm-hmm. was mostly um, at Hebrew University in Jerusalem that was mostly um, going out and seeing things and then having lectures and conversation seminars in situ rather than in a classroom, which was fantastic. That's awesome. So one day we did the Hezekiah's tunnel thing and, Mm -hmm. um, and came out at the pool of Siloam. And then we were going to get a coach back up from the pool of Siloam back up to the Western wall. And then he was like, Oh, hang on a second. And climbed through a giant barrier with like caution tape all over it and was like, came back two minutes later and he's like, girls, girls, come with that. Come with me. Come with me. Cause there were um, five other women in our class and uh, he called us girls, which was annoying, but you know, whatever deal with it. So we follow him through the giant barrier with the caution tape over it. Like you're supposed to do. (laughs) Like you're supposed to do. um, Into a tunnel that is currently under excavation. So it's not open. um, I'm not sure if it's open. It wasn't open last summer. So it wasn't open yet last summer. Um, And this was in 2017. So it's probably still not open now because COVID. Um, So we end up in this tunnel. And he's like, so guess where you're walking right now? And it turns out that we were under the Roman road. And underneath the Roman roads, because the Romans were, like, super awesome at sanitation, was a sewer. So we were walking in the Roman era sewer. (laughs) So, like, in the sewer (laughs) from the time that Jesus was alive, from the Pool of Siloam, back up the hill to the Western Wall to the Temple. (laughs) 
So we're like trotting through this like 2000 year old or well, I guess, yeah, about 2300 year old sewer, which was super cool. (laughs) And then we get up to the end, um, Mm -hmm. as far as we can go. And uh, Yuda stops us and he says, oh, look where you are now. And in uh, in front of us, there are these blocks of stone that are um, almost a, an, arms, an arm span of mine wide. Mm-hmm. I'm 5'6", um, I'm for those of you who don't know. So that I <laughs> okay. reasonably long yeah. arm span. Um, and so there's all these blocks of stone. And Yuda says, where do you think you guys are? And uh, one of the gals who was in the class with me, she was uh, saying that is this the temple? And I was like, oh my God, it's the temple. So then we climb up out of the ground and emerge like basically from a manhole (laughs) next to the (laughs) Western wall. And people are like in the courtyard being like, where did those people come from? (laughs) Like five (laughs) students from Hebrew University, Yuna Kaplan, our professor and our Israeli forces security guard, because you have to have a dude with a gun everywhere in Israel, Palestine. Yeah, it's a thing. But so there's this, uh, this takes you out, this manhole takes you out into the space next to um, the Western Wall, the, what is known now as the Wailing Wall. And mm-hmm. along this wall, um, there's an ancient road. There's a lot of rubble because people have been building and tearing down the temple complex for like 4,000 mm-hmm. years. Um, mm-hmm. But there are also these porticos. So they're small... There's spaces that are sort of the size of what we would think of as a, a really good walk-in closet. Um, okay. Like a solid walk-in closet, about that big. And okay. they have in them, uh, in the so they're dressed stone. Everything's made of stone there, and mm-hmm. it's all this sort of white, right. um, beigey, gray stone. Um, so it, And it's all dressed stone with roofs and a plinth out front. Like there's a sidewalk for people to go on. This was a, a really sophisticated city back in the day. Mm-hmm. But in this, the wall of the stone, you can see on on each side um, two holes, and they're just sort of indentations. And their purpose, um, archaeologists believe, is for um, uh, poles to sit in, and then you lay a table or a, a plank of wood on top of it, and mm-hmm. this is where merchants would sell things. Oh, cool. Um, but it might also be where um, money lenders would change coins. Right. And if you recall the lovely story of Jesus flipping over the table. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. So we could look at that and say, here we have evidence. Now we can say that this story actually happened. Jesus, look, there were, there were men changing money out front of the temple. This is what these were used for. And we have the mm-hmm. story about Jesus coming in and flipping over the table and getting angry at the money lenders and the money changers. Therefore, mm-hmm. Jesus flipped over the tables of the money changers. Right. This is the interpretive process that happens. Or okay. you can say, this is possible, but it's also possible that they were selling pigeons or it's also possible that they were selling cloth or apples or figs. Um, right. So this is the problem of interpretation because unfortunately there are no more signs on the porticos telling us exactly what they were doing. We don't right. have that kind of information in the ancient world. We have beautiful aqueducts and palaces and porticos and gorgeous old roads and temples yeah. and the whole thing. But nobody tells us what they were actually for. Okay. So we have to figure it out for ourselves. 
But, so, so would you would you be able to so look at that and say it's possible that there were moneylenders doing this and that they were here, and because we have that story, we can then infer that there was like cultural anxiety around this practice and like that people were thinking about this and were that this is a like make broader sort of statements about the larger context yeah. of like the culture from that yeah. or if if any of our versions that we have of Jesus's life were actually written by Jewish people who lived in Judea mm-hmm. Palestine um mm-hmm. or from even close to when he was alive then yes and okay. we we could talk about that or um that, but this is the other problem is that we don't have for most of our sources we right. don't especially for Christian sources we don't have good dates for this period we have no dates for mm-hmm. anything from any of our New Testament sources Right. Um, and so we have no idea even when Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John was written. Right. All we know is that they're, they're telling us stories about the turn of the last millennia or the previous millennia, but they were not written at the time. They weren't written by anybody who knew Jesus, who knew someone who knew Jesus, who knew someone who knew Jesus. They're written by um, scholarly men and scribes. Um, anywhere between 100 and 200 years after Jesus died. So, and the the other thing to remember too, is that all of our versions of Jesus's life, um, when they're written, the temple isn't standing anymore. That whole society Mm -hmm. of Jerusalem is gone. Um, The temple is destroyed in 70. um, And most of the Jews at that time are um, expelled from Jerusalem. There are some, still some Jews living in Jerusalem, but they're not worshiping in the temple anymore. Um, that, that whole world is, is mm-hmm. destroyed. But then also by the time um, I, I prefer a later dating um, for all of the versions, but especially for Matthew, Luke and John, um, mm-hmm. We're also within the context of the Bar Kokhba revolt, um, where not only okay. is the temple destroyed, but after the Bar Kokhba revolt, most of Jerusalem is razed right. to the ground and all of the Jews yeah. are expelled from that city. So there's a huge cultural discontinuation between the time that Jesus was alive and the stories that they're, that the gospel authors are trying to tell us um, and the time that they're writing. So... Maybe what they're telling us is their own anxieties about currency and money changing and sacrifice at the temple. And maybe they're telling us about the anxieties of the people who lived at the time that Jesus was alive. But we don't know how much of their own enculturation is affecting the stories that they're telling us. Probably a lot. We tend to tell stories that are very enculturated for ourselves. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think it's super fun. Yeah, no, it yeah. is. It is. It's a. It's a. It's a similar and yet like very distinct process to how we do work for like pre-contact indigenous yes. knowledge as well. Yes, like because there is a a very clear system of oral knowledge by understanding the way that that knowledge is passed down you can figure out when and how things happened by lining it up with archaeological evidence and like what is happening in the story so interesting cool yeah 
And there's, there is a lot of work done on orality studies, um, within historical Jesus mm-hmm. studies as well. Um, figuring out, can, can okay. we say that he actually said any of these things and learning how people remember and how people pass down these oral stories as well. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Um, so awesome. That's our history. Cool. Section. Success. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. done uh, um so then yeah i guess we just i know this part is going to be difficult for both of us because uh the super yeah. protestants <laughs> talking about uh uh-huh. ritual and like not even anglicans like <laughs> no Sonia, why did you have to be ill today? We needed our hangover. one Catholic to come and tell us to tell us what to do. <laughs> like in more ways than one. Because, uh, yeah, so I don't have a whole lot of research about this because the, the again, I do North mm-hmm. American studies and North America is, with Quebec as an exception, just super Protestant. And most Protestants in the period that, like, I look out didn't really love holidays. As anyone who listened to our Christmas episodes about why Christmas was not really a thing in North America for a real long time will know, like, yeah, Epiphany wasn't a huge deal either. Sometimes people had, like, New Year's dinners with their family but mostly it was like we're just not going to do anything so i don't know it's like covid all over again (laughs) yeah yeah there is there is no celebrations again uh like with christmas this wasn't a a reveling holiday but because of its connection to christmas uh celebrations within the period that would be the 12 days of christmas uh in the period of the puritans in new england like you would be fined for celebrations Mm -hmm. within that period a Mm -hmm. lot of money uh five shillings which is a lot what would that be if i had five shillings when i was a puritan what could i buy with five shillings um it yeah so it depends it depends sorry (laughs) yeah so there's not like that's the thing is like so like it's that's the thing uh, because this is like there is money and there is trade, but like the the value of that for tax purposes is real. But whether or not you're actually yeah. you in daily life, you wouldn't be using coin very Actual often, coin. right? Okay, okay. Um, so do for the the question of of ritual and epiphany do. Do the Quakers have or had, did they ever have a specific epiphany activity? Quakers were like many early Protestants. And if you go to what is called like a conservative meeting now, so they're like non-pastoral, right? You don't have a preacher. Mm-hmm. Um, there are not holidays. Okay. And the like... Along with, you know, the early Puritans, the reason for not having a holiday in this, like, theological 
sense is that you are supposed to treat every day and every moment with reverence for God. And so like early Quakers who in England and then those who fled to New England and then had to flee New England (laughs) because the fun fact, Quakers are the only Christian Protestant Christian sect that were actively, um, what am I looking for? What's the word? Persecuted, persecuted within North America. Um, there were Seriously? Quakers who were hanged as witches in Massachusetts for being Quakers, not for actually practicing witchcraft. Um, because <laughs> women could speak in meeting, children could speak in meeting. There's this idea oh. of equality mm-hmm. and that you don't necessarily even need to like really read the Bible. Like it's encouraged, obviously. Like you should learn to read. Everyone should learn to read. That was another thing. Mm. We're teaching women to read. It's a whole deal. And then talking in church, they must be witches. Yeah. So that was a that was a whole thing. But yeah. So um, most early Quaker communities, you didn't have regularly scheduled meeting either. So you mm. they built a meeting house that was a place where you could have meeting or a church service, right? But um, there is talk in, if you read the early faith and practice text, um, that you are, a meeting can happen anytime there is more than one person gathered and you turn to quiet reflection on God or faith or any Mm -hmm. of these things. And so like, they talk a lot about like, you can have meeting while going to the well, you know, like, so if you run into a friend at the well, and you're like, let's take a moment to think about like our gratitude for water and like, yeah, God's purpose in giving us water here in this moment or whatever. So like, there is a meeting house where they would have regularly scheduled meetings for business where, Mm. you know, you would, as a community have to talk about like, what are we going to do with grain stores and things like that? And like, how are we going to, but you didn't have holidays because every day was a holiday. Every moment was supposed to be in gratitude to God. And I mean, that's why like you have all these Quaker speak things where like, you know, when we have meeting on Sundays, it's not Sunday worship. It's meeting for worship on the first day. So the Could weeks, so the weeks, though, you don't talk about like the Sabbath or whatever. It's first day, second day, third day or midweek. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. So like I see. Okay. now because people have like crazy lives and we don't live in an entirely mm-hmm. Quaker community and like all of these things, mm-hmm. you know, there is a scheduled meeting on first day. There's also midweek worship, which would be on like a, on Wednesday. So like on, um, what is that? Fourth day. It's I just and and we never leave the house anymore, so it doesn't even yeah, matter. It doesn't it doesn't <laughs> at all. It's it's Wednesday, but yeah, they say midweek meeting. And then the other like really famous known parts of Quaker speak uh is that at the period when like Quakers came to be a thing, when the the friends the society was founded, um English still had a formal you so like in english you corresponded to vu or sted right so it was the formal and or plural second person 
Mm-hmm. And then thee or thou was the singular and or informal. Um, and then, of course, you had all of the like prefaces of lord, lady, whatever. Um, and in Quaker speak, you addressed everyone as the thou thine um, because everyone was equal. And if we talked about this in Bible study, actually, if in, in yeah, God, yeah, in God's yeah. in in church, when you talk about God, God is always talk. You speak to God in the informal, you know, God, we worship thee or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and so if you're going to talk to God on that level, then you should talk to all people on that level because you're acknowledging the God within all of them. And you would never use titles. So everyone was, you know, friend Esther, friend Devin, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Not, brother not, or sister. Yeah, not lady mm-hmm. or Lord. Yeah, so... Mm-hmm. It was that your your Which relationship is- was with the spirit, the light. It's the the light is the is God that exists within every person. Okay. And so like your relationship wasn't necessarily with the person. It's the light of God that's in you recognizing the light of God that's in them. And so that's the relationship that you have with people. And so like mm-hmm. when you meet someone new, it's oh well, your friend Esther. How art thee mm-hmm. today? You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, yes. And it's it's obviously fallen out of favor since nobody uses thee or thou anymore. Uh, but Quakers yep. did keep a hold on it long <laughs> after people really stopped using it, um, like well into the 18th century. Um, but yeah, that's well, the... Well, you've, you've read uh, Neil Stephenson's Baroque Cycle, the Quicksilver novel. Is that... Mm-mm. Who the no okay? Um, I don't think Neil so. Stephenson, who's this? He's a sci-fi speculative fiction author, and he wrote an entire series of books, um, three giant tomes, <laughs> uh, fe- featuring Daniel Waterhouse, whose oh. father Drake Waterhouse is like best buddies with Cromwell yeah. during the interregnum period. <laughs> um, and whenever Daniel encounters um, another. Um, they call them Barkers or Quakers or uh, dissident preachers or yeah. whatever. They always speak to them with thee and thou. Yeah. And before talking to you about thee and thous in Bible study, I was like, that's so weird. They're talking to each other in this really formal language. And then you were like, no, that's actually the informal. Yeah. And I was like, there's another layer of why Neil Stephenson is the greatest author <laughs> ever because he paid attention. So he actually has um, all of the Quakers discuss or conversing in a, an informal, not because Daniel ends up being uh, quite a big deal. Yeah. Um, and and lots of people are addressing him as regent or lord or whatever. And these guys are like, brother Daniel. Yeah. 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 So maintaining and, this informal. And obviously, like, the, so the Quakers, it's the Religious Society of Friends. They're called Quakers because mm-hmm. they were, I can't remember what his name was, was a preacher, sort of. Like, obviously, there, there wasn't a, like, there's not a clergy. I mean, so some modern mm-hmm. uh congregations have a clergy but in the early days like there wouldn't have been any clergy but someone who was uh converting people i guess uh, i can't remember for the life of me remember his name but he was called before the king and he was like why are you disrespecting the church this way like you know you're acting like a crazy person what are you some kind of quaker mm-hmm. And he was like, and it was, it was like weird. It's weird to read it now. I think he's like making 
fun of him for something. And then he's like, well, you know, if if you're talking about whether I quake before God, then yes, I do. I quake before the power um. of God. And then it became like this thing as like a sort of derogatory. But then the friends were like, no, this is good. I, I <laughs> are quaking before yeah, God. We're quaking before the power yes. of God. So. Yeah, but that's yeah. I think so that's great. so yeah. I don't have a, a whole lot of context for uh, ritual, ritual practices, practices epiphany. at Epiphany. No, no. Um, being a United Church of Canada member um, whose family is deeply Congregationalist, so pretty much as disestablishment as you can get in the United Church of Canada. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, since um, uh, in two thousand and four. Uh, so since 2003, I haven't actually been to church on Epiphany <laughs> because um, my my mother and my stepfather are both ministers uh, in the United Church. And so we always had uh, Christmas Eve was a working day. Right. Um, so we did the, the Christmas Eve church thing. And then sometimes even the 11 o'clock or the midnight service. Mm -hmm. And then we would get in the car and immediately drive up to the Udaway to our cottage right. uh, where we would stay for at least a week, if not two. So I have never been to church on Epiphany <laughs> because we, as an adult, because yeah. um, we were, we've always been at the cottage. Um, but, you know, it's probably just another church service or it would just be another church service right. um, for us. We, we don't have fancy clothes and stuff for. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> uh, this is no rituals. Well, don't really do we'll, ritual. We'll or at least we tell ourselves that we don't do ritual. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll have at the beginning. So we're doing another sort of like New Year's episode next mm. week, where we're talking about uh, New Year's resolutions and a few other sort of things. I'll have Sonia be like, "This is what people who have actual ritualized lives do." Idea. Um, uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. But otherwise yeah. we can start the new year off thinking about historical knowledge. Yay, yes. historical knowledge. This yes. episode is way dream interpretation. nerdier than it normally is. I love it. Bring it on. <laughs> and your yes, your modern nerd is super fun. So <laughs> I think it's great. Cool. Awesome. All right. Yeah. So Thanks. Um, and yeah, so thanks for coming on and talking to us about the the history of Epiphany. And I guess to all of our listeners, like every week, uh, stay safe and do good work. Do you have anything? Thank you so much for having me. This is really lovely. With Proceed.